Santa Muerte, or as he called her, Santissima Muerte, is the spirit of death. Ladies and gentlemen, And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com, with another edition of BOA Audio Season 5. We have got a really fantastic episode here for you, my friends. Definitely heading into some uncharted waters for BOA Audio Before we get into this week's program, let me plug the Popcast initiative. I know a lot of BOA Audio listeners have already checked this out, but for those folks who didn't know that we've launched TPI at BOA, head on over to the website. You'll be able to find the Popcast initiative, or just punch it into iTunes, and you'll be able to grab it that way as well. Hilarious stuff. Myself and Jeremy Vaney talking about pop culture and sharing some really great stories from our past. It's like the wild, wild west of audio, and definitely something you want to check out if you're a BOA audio aficionado. Now that we've taken care of that, let's talk about this week's edition of the program. Our guest is an extensive researcher of magico-religious cultures, Tony Kale, and he's joining us for primarily a discussion on Santa Muerte, Mexico's mysterious saint of death. He is the author of the book, by that title, Santa Muerte, Mexico's Mysterious Saint of Death. You definitely want to check that out. It is bizarre and captivating. And in this conversation, we're going to cover a ton of stuff. It is really rapid fire as far as all the different areas we get into. We're going to find out about the mysterious origins of Santa Muerte, her rise to popularity in Mexico, how she's been adopted by both the downtrodden as well as the drug culture and criminal underground, and the Santa Muerte backlash from both the Mexican federal government as well as the Catholic Church. We'll also discuss Mexican folk medicine and folk saints like Lady of Guadalupe, Dr. Hernandez, and Jesus Malverde. In addition to his research into Santa Muerte, Tony has also studied all kinds of magico-religious cultures throughout Africa and Latin America, and as such, we're going to hear about Africa's war on witchcraft, voodoo, santeria, strange stories from Tony's travels in Africa, the cattle mutilation phenomenon and how that may or may not tie into magical religious cultures, and of course tons and tons more really mystical topics. Altogether it is truly an enlightening look at some of the world's most intriguing and mysterious religions and cultures from a man who has seen them up close and personal. Tony Kale not only talks the talk, he's walked the walk in a big way. He has personally investigated a lot of these magico-religious cultures, and I think you'll find his insight and perspective on all this stuff to be quite fascinating. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Tony Kale, allow me to provide you with a little background on him. Tony Kale has traveled extensively throughout the United States and Africa, where he has spent 20 years studying magico-religious cultures. 
He has interviewed practitioners, observed ceremonies, and documented practices of numerous African and Latin folk healing traditions in order to educate public safety professionals about unfamiliar cultures. He has written for Fate Magazine, Law & Order, Police Quarterly, and the Journal of Counterterrorism. He's appeared on numerous television and radio shows, including the History Channel's UFO Hunters. Tony is the founder of Safe Spiritual Practices, a grassroots humanitarian project dedicated to providing health education programs to indigenous countries of East Africa, focusing on ending child exorcisms and violent witch hunts. His website is www.muertebook.info. Let me spell that one out for you. Muerte, M-U-E-R-T-E, book.info. Put it all together and it's muertebook.info. Check it out. Links, obviously, all over BOA as well. And now, without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on July 16th, 2010. Tony Kale talking about Santa Muerte and Magico Religious Cultures on BOA Audio Season 5. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Banal of America Audio. Coming at you with an interview here that I've been looking forward to for quite some time. Our guest is Tony Kale. He is the author of Santa Muerte, Mexico's Mysterious Saint of Death. Fascinating investigation into this really mysterious figure that has quite a following down in Mexico and has spread to America and the Internet and is a really creepy-looking character um, and then has a lot of creepy attributes attached to it as well. And I've sort of heard about Santa Muerte in various places, but I never found as much, you know, fascinating material put together in one book as I did until I picked up Santa Muerte by Tony Kale. So I'm excited to have him here on the show. Tony Kale, welcome to BOA Audio. And thank you so much for having me. Well, let's start out, you know, with the obvious stuff, the bio background. Who is Tony Kale? How did you get interested in Santa Muerte in the first place? Well, for about the last 20 years, uh, I've been doing research on various religious cultures. Uh, growing up here in the Bible Belt and, and working some with law enforcement through the years, uh, when law enforcement in this area has encountered um, what some may call non-traditional religious cultures, uh, and, and I use that rather loosely because here in the South, you know, non-traditional can mean everything from Hinduism uh, to Wicca, you know. Yeah. And so many times law enforcement would encounter different groups when responding to calls and uh, maybe not know necessarily where to put that group. Uh, and, and a lot of times there's a lot of misconceptions that anything non-traditional is Satanism and diabolical and things of that nature. So. One of the things I've been doing the last 20 years is providing seminars for public safety agencies on understanding different religious cultures. We try to educate uh, police and first responders on what they're going to see uh, when they encounter different faiths. I, I myself am a, uh, a student of religion, and uh, my wife and I do some work in East Africa uh, with a uh, humanitarian group there. Back in, oh, I guess it was about 2007, uh, we were in Kenya and encountered a, uh, a pretty brutal child exorcism going on there. Oh, God. And uh, this was uh, a young African boy who had epilepsy. And this belief that the, the child was possessed by demons uh, had kind of been perpetrated throughout the community from one of the local uh, churches there. 
And so we, we witnessed this child going through this, this pretty horrific exorcism and decided, you know, one of the things that, that there's a great need for there is education. And so we've uh, been going with a medical team and we're, we're starting an educational program on safe spiritual practices there to educate African communities on uh, safe approaches to everything from, you know, exorcism to, to witch hunts. Uh, witch hunts are still a very real phenomena there where uh, if, if um, an elderly person uh, betrays the wrong person, uh, they can end up killed. And so uh, there's a lot of education that's needed there. So that's kind of our background as far as some of the different areas uh, we work in. And during the course of our research on religious cultures, uh, a couple of years ago, I was in a uh, uh, Afro-Caribbean uh, religious temple, and the priest of this particular temple had allowed me to come in and document some of his uh, group's rituals. And we were talking and uh, talking a little bit about how some of the different Afro-Caribbean religious faiths, such as Santeria, Halo, and uh, Voodoo, uh, sort of get a bad rap in the press many times because, you know, it's typically when someone's arrested for selling a cat or, or selling dope and, and using different cultural aspects. And then the, the mainstream media all of a sudden picks up and goes, oh, you know, uh, Santeria is for drug dealers or Voodoo is for, for people who are out doing crazy things. So with this great misunderstanding, we were trying to kind of build some education by documenting some actual rituals and actual customs of groups. Yeah. And the leader of this particular temple shared with me um, that one of the, the biggest uh, criminal incidents that's, that's well known that harmed his community was uh, the incident that happened in Matamoros, Mexico, uh, back in the late 80s. And in Matamoros, there was a, a group of drug runners that had picked up practices of some pretty traditional Afro-Caribbean faiths, such as Santeria and Palo Mayombe, mm -hmm. and they sort of twisted them and created their own rituals. And in the midst of this, they ended up murdering over 12 individuals oh, God. and using them in rituals. Oh, man. So when this comes out in the press, you know, the first thing the press says, oh, look, you know, here, here are people practicing this religion. That's why they're killing people. And so this, this myth is perpetrated that practitioners of these different African faiths are, are doing human sacrifices because of this group. And I, I, I sort of presented this uh, situation to the priest when, when he told me about it. I said, well, you know, what do you, how does that group stick out from the mainstream religious communities? And he said, well, you know, Tony, he said, I think the reason they got caught is because they invoked a spirit they shouldn't have invoked. And he said, Santa Muerte, or as he called her, Santissima Muerte, is the spirit of death. And they called on her. And if you don't know what you're doing when you call on the spirit, the results can be very deadly. Well, this is the first time, you know, researching religious culture for years that I'd ever heard the name Santissima Muerte. And he went on to explain that she's a very old spirit that's from Mexico. And in fact, he, he showed me an image of her 
in his temple. And her image is that of, it, it looks very much like the classical image of the Virgin Mary, except her face is that of, of a skeleton. And he explained that you don't call on her unless you know what you're doing. And as a result, that's why that group sort of imploded. And of course, that's, that's his spiritual worldview on that. But something I, I found very fascinating, that that particular group had somewhat imploded by this spiritual disaster as a result of, of using Santa Muerte. So as time went on, um, a couple of years later, I had a, a friend in the uh, pagan community call me. She had discovered a, uh, a spiritual supply shop in her, her area, and she said, uh, she said, Tony, you've got to meet this guy. There's a man who runs this shop, and he's an older uh, Latin gentleman, and he calls on Santa Muerte, the spirit of death. And uh, I, I said, oh, well, you know, definitely I'd, I'd like to, to meet him. So she takes me to meet this guy. And as I would get there, um, the, they take me into the back of this guy's store. And he has a, a room that's sealed off from the rest of the store. Yeah. And as he opens the door, uh, I can see into the room. It's completely dark except for the light coming from some candles and some Christmas lights. And as we walk into the room, I start hearing the sound of crickets. And it's sort of giving the impression that I'm walking out into a wooded area. And I start to see branches hanging. And he has several plants and trees in this back room. And as I get closer to the light, I notice there's a shrine that's set up. And in the midst of the shrine are several statues of Santa Muerte. And he's created the shrine uh, within a a small, uh, his own forest, if you will, indoors. And there are several statues of the saint. Uh, There are piles of money, cigars, uh, coins, and dollars. And he tells me, "This this is my mother, and she is the one that works for me. And she does many wonderful miracles. Wow. So it was a very eerie experience. Not long after that, I began to see in some of the the Mexican newspapers. Of course, now, when we talk about Mexican newspapers, our newspapers here are are nothing like the newspapers out of Mexico. You know, the the newspapers out of Mexico, uh, they don't just talk about a shooting. They'll show the victim of the shooting, you know. They don't talk about an automobile accident. They show the guy who was beheaded in the accident. Oh, geez. So they're very wide open, you know, with with their journalistic liberties there. Yeah. And uh, I noticed in some of the the Mexican newspapers that there was uh, images of victims of drug-related violence from some of the drug cartels, um, and they were wearing necklaces with pendants with the smiling skull of Santa Muerte. And I started seeing more and more of her, and it was almost like from that first moment of seeing her in that Apollo temple uh, that I started seeing her everywhere I went, whether it be in magazines, whether it be on store shelves of spiritual supply stores. And so I started asking questions uh, about, you know, where did she come from? And I would get, a number of different answers. You know, I would have a, uh, a 
a Santero, a, a priest in the Santeria religion, tell me, oh, I, I hear she's from the Aztecs. And then I would talk to someone who practiced uh, Latin folk magic, curanderismo, uh, and they would say, oh, she's the dark side of the Virgin Mary. And so I, I never was able to get a concrete answer. And so it sort of spurred me to, to start looking for answers of where she came from. And the beginning of this inquiry into where this mysterious saint came from just sort of revealed this unbelievable spiritual phenomena that is going on not only in Mexico, but in the United States and throughout the world. Yeah, I mean, I was stunned by just how pervasive Santa Muerte is. And, and you kind of already gave us sort of like a thumbnail description of this uh, character. Now, what is – I noticed a lot of similarities between the Santa Muerte and the Grim Reaper. Is this something where it's sort of like adopted – one's adopted the other's sort of uh, attributes, or is there a difference, or are they pretty much the same thing? Or what – you know, what's the what's the correlation between those two figures? Well, the, the Grim Reaper is one of the many – cultural symbols for death that we have. Um, in fact, the Grim Reaper specifically uh, is said to be connected God Kronos. And really, the Grim Reaper and Santa Muerte are just one of the many masks of, of death. We can look through world cultures, whether they be Asian, African, Indo-European, and find representatives of death. Uh, for instance, in Haitian voodoo, uh, spirits of the dead are known as the gay day, and the gay day um, many times are represented by skeletons and, and grinning skulls. And uh, last year I attended a, uh, a voodoo ceremony in New Orleans, and they celebrated a festival for the gay day. And at this festival, uh, you would see paper mache skeletons and coffins and grinning skulls. And when we look at where Santa Muerte comes from in the Mexican culture, the skeletal figure is such a common symbol for death. You know, when, when we look at the Aztecs, the Aztecs had a lord and lady that ruled their underworld, uh, and, and they're very strikingly similar to Santa Muerte. Uh, Santa Muerte is just another one of these archetypes of death. Yeah. It's just a different mask. Um, you know, in, in Mexican culture, uh, I found that there was no shortage of the, that figure as a representation for death. Uh, in Mexico and in many Latin American communities in the U.S., uh, November 1st uh, is celebrated the Day of the Dead. And of course, there's celebrations with skeletons and candy skulls and, you know, Mexican folklore is filled with stories uh, about death as a, a spirit. Uh, one of the more popular ones is the, uh, the, the legend of La Llorona, uh, La Llorona or, or the crying woman. And uh, her legend is, is it very popular in uh, many Mexican uh, communities where it's said that this lady fell in love with a man and the lady had a couple of children. And, and the story varies, uh, but most of the time it's pretty pretty much along the same theme, and, and that is that this man said, you know, I'll take you, but I, I don't want those children. And so the lady took the children down to a lake and drowned them. 
And when she realized what she had done, she went crazy. And so the legend says that she roams the countryside looking for children to kidnap and that from the back, she appears as a beautiful woman with long, flowing black hair, but with a skeletal face. And uh, this is, uh, uh, there, there's actually, uh, you know, this is actually told to, I have a good friend who is uh, from Mexico, and she said, yeah, this was told to us as kids. You know, this is our boogeyman. And so there's no shortage of that image of that grim reaperish skeletal figure yeah. uh, in, in Mexican culture and, and throughout the world. Seems that way, yeah. Now, in the book, you, you note that Santa Muerte is just one of many Mexican folk saints. And I guess talk a little bit about, you know, some of these other folk saints, because some of them are pretty popular with the uh, criminal underground and also just have some pretty cool stories behind them. So, uh, you know, aside from the Santa Muerte, what, what are some of these other folk saints in Mexico? The folk saints from Latin America are a, a very fascinating facet uh, of, of their culture. Uh, the folk saints tend to develop in areas where there's a need uh, that is not met by the, the establishment. Let me explain it like this. If you live in a community where, say, smallpox was a very um, popular uh, sickness or, or a, a very popular disease among members of the community, yeah. but yet there was no saint in your particular pantheon of saints that addressed that need, Maybe there was someone in that community who helped children with smallpox. Maybe they were considered as a very powerful spiritual person. And after they die, uh, they may be venerated as, as a folk saint. They, they may be considered a saint by only a small region of people. Okay. And so typically the, these folk saints aren't uh, necessarily canonized by the Catholic Church. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've asked a, a friend of mine who's Catholic about Santa Muerte, and he said, oh, you know, make no mistake, she is not part of traditional Catholic saints. And and so these folk saints are kind of in a league of their own. Um, one of the most uh, revered uh, is Our Lady of Guadalupe, uh, as far as having a lot of folk followings. Um, Our, Lady of, Our Lady of Guadalupe is said to have appeared to a Mexican peasant on a mountain, uh, near Mexico City, and and she performed miracles. She made flowers grow in winter, and she made her image appear on his his mantle, his clothing. And it's believed among some of the the folk followers of Our Lady of Guadalupe that she is actually a reincarnated Aztec goddess. And so there's a little bit of syncretism mixed in there. Yeah. Um, another. A very interesting folk saint in Latin America is uh, Dr. Hernandez. And Dr. Hernandez uh, was originally a Venezuelan physician, and he was known for his charity work among children and among the impoverished. And Dr. Hernandez would, would go and help the poor without charging them any fee. And so we have seen as this, this great spiritual man, and he was killed in an automobile accident. And after his death, it became very popular to take images of Dr. Hernandez and place them uh, in a shrine and pray to him uh, in hopes that he would heal sickness. And so many times you'll see this figure of this little man in a suit with a top hat, and that's Dr. Hernandez, and it's believed he has that power to heal. 
when we talk about the the uh, less desirables, if you will, one of the more popular <laughs> folk saints uh, that comes up typically alongside Santa Morte is Jesus Malverde, and Jesus Malverde is is typically known as the narco saint or the patron saint of drug dealers. Uh, Jesus Malverde was a, a legendary bandit uh, and has this folklore surrounding him that that he was actually not such a bad guy. He was actually more of a Robin Hood yeah. type guy who robbed from the rich and gave to the poor. And so now you've got uh, groups of folks who follow Malverde and believe that they can pray to him and that he will protect them from being arrested. Um, I have friends in law enforcement who tell me stories of where they've arrested guys who are, you know, selling cocaine or selling marijuana, and they're wearing amulets dedicated to to Malverde, and they say they believe that he was going to protect them in their work. One anthropologist that that's been sharing with me, who's done a lot of research on Malverde, shares that he is finding an increasingly larger audience of followers of Malverde that aren't involved in criminal activity, that that they just believe that Malverde is a good guy who's kind of misunderstood and, you know, that that it is a a minority that is involved in crime and and following Malverde. Interesting. Okay. Makes you wonder when you hear about this pantheon of folk saints down in Latin America, it's like... What does that say about our country? Are there, are there folk saints like here in America that that you would even you know kind of put in the same realm, or I mean, are we just venerate our celebrities or something? I don't. That, that's a good question. You know, we we look and 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 many times make this judgment as Westerners that oh, you know, look at look at this pitiful population venerating these these folk saints, but yet we'll prop up a million dollars for Paris Hilton. Yeah, you know, I mean, you know, who's who's in the worst for that? So exactly, yeah. So, yeah, so yeah, it's you know, it's it all depends. It's it's all about worldview. It's where you're coming from. You know, if I was raised in a village or a community where one particular person provided spiritual care, uh, and and that particular person meant a lot to us, I can totally understand that concept of, of a folk saying. Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. If anything, I was making a judgment about uh, our country. <laughs> you know, it's like it's it's, right. it's uh, you, you you wonder if there's anything beneath the veneer at some time at times. Exactly, exactly. Now, in the book, you point out that uh, Santa Muerte appeals to those that are quote in the dark, the impoverished, the social outcasts, the criminals, because they don't feel like that the traditional Catholic saints that, that their prayers will get answered by those traditional Catholic saints. So I guess just talk about that sort of mindset as to why Santa Muerte appeals to this, you know, class of people, I guess you'd say. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question because that's one of the first things that, that I discovered. It, it, it kind of perplexed me. You know, I heard for so long this uh, stories of Santa Muerte as this patron saint of the criminals or patron saint of bad folks. And then I started meeting some of her followers and I'm meeting little elderly Mexican ladies who have probably never stole a piece of candy in their life. Yeah. Or or meeting, um, you know, uh, practicing neo-pagan practitioners who are very 
socially acceptable, socially conscious folks who are not involved in criminal activity, but they include this image in their pantheon of, of gods and goddesses or saints. And and the more I looked into it, I found out that there's it's just kind of where you're coming from uh, as far as how you see her. Uh, one follower is, is noted as saying she listens to the prayers that the Virgin Mary won't listen to. And you kind of begin to understand that worldview. There's a really cool story told in, in Mexican folklore about how uh, a peasant had two chickens, and he had two children, and he fed one chicken to his children. And he was going to eat the other one, but he decided he would wait and, and just kind of pray. And during the night, he's visited by different spiritual figures. And he tells these spiritual figures who, who ask him for the little bit of food he has left, he tells them, no, you know, you're unfair to me. And, and you, you treat some people with respect and give them food and money, but yet my family's starving. And at the end of the evening, the spirit of death shows up at his house in the form of a skeletal figure, much like Muerte, and asks for food. And he says, I will give you food because you are fair to everyone. Death comes to the rich and the poor. And so I began to, to, you know, kind of understand this worldview that Muerte is not only this, this archetype that's, that's valuable to, say, the criminal, but is also uh, an archetype that's valuable to someone who feels like death is, you know, the great equalizer. Yeah. And I think, too, when we look at Santa Muerte, um, most of us, who are not around death constantly, uh, you know, we kind of get freaked out by this, this eerie image of, of death. But if we were to be in a community where death is common, uh, if I lived in Mexico and there's wars in the streets going on from drug cartels and the police, death is a constant neighbor. And so I, I could understand, you know, that particular view. Yeah, as you say, we don't really know the exact origins of Santa Muerte, but do we know sort of like when she exploded into like, you know, the popular consciousness uh, in the area? Do you know what I mean? Like we may not be able to trace it back the original origins of the of the deity or the or the, the, the figure, but you know, when did it seem to start showing up all of a sudden? She has been around in Mexico and known among the Mexican communities for several years. She's she's only kind of been a recent phenomena here in the US, um, you know, maybe the last probably less than 20 years, probably around 10 years, uh, as far as being really well-known. Yeah. And in Mexico, one of the uh, one of the first public shrines was set up uh, a couple of years ago in uh, Tepito, Mexico. Uh, and there was a, a lady who basically took a, a statue of Santa Muerte and, and closed it in glass and placed it outside her home and, and started out a very humble shrine to the death saint. And now, on a regular, bi-weekly basis, there are literally thousands of people that come out. In fact, the, the cover photo uh, on the book is, is a shot from Tepito. Uh, thousands of men and women and children come out and, and perform these celebrations. There are mass prayer services. Uh, mariachi bands play songs for for Santa Morte, and so 
you know, over the, it's just been over the last couple of years where she's really started to explode. But as far as when she first kind of came onto the scene, you know, we will find opinions here and there. Uh, but again, it's, it's just, uh, there's so much data and it's very hard to, to pinpoint exactly when she stepped onto the scene. Yeah. Well, I guess talk a little bit about how the, the drug culture down there in Mexico has adopted Santa Muerte to such a huge degree. Cause I was surprised. I was surprised just in general, but about how big the drug culture is in Mexico to the point where it's almost like it sounded from reading your book, like that it was just like this accepted part of the overall, you know, uh, society down there. It was a little, almost take you a little back when you read it like that. Yeah. And and I think that, uh, you know, it's, it's, it comes as a a huge surprise to many Americans that uh, there's been, you know, announcements in the news over the last couple of months about sending federal troops to, to Mexico and, and to, to the border. Um, and, and I think it comes as a surprise because a lot of us have not been aware of the magnitude of what's going on there with the Mexican drug cartels. Yeah. Uh, the Mexican drug cartels, uh, I tell you, in, in their methods of violence rival al-Qaeda in many instances. Uh, there are mass beheadings. There are targeted kidnappings. There are assassinations. Uh, there, there's some very dirty stuff going on there in Mexico. I thought it was fascinating. I was contacted by a, uh, a drug war analyst. Um, uh, this particular uh, analyst used to, to work for the U- United States Army, and she, she kind of keeps an eye on things there uh, in, in Mexico and reports on the happenings with the drug cartels. And she contacted me about a story that, that came out actually in, in Reuters News saying that the Mexican, pol- Mexican police uh, were starting to practice uh, voodoo and santeria to magically protect themselves. Oh, wow. Because drug dealers were arming themselves with what they were calling Mexican black magic. And it was fascinating to see this story that, that there were authorities coming out saying, you know, the magical operations of the drug cartels have gotten so heavy that the police feel that they need to magically protect themselves. And and I know that seems extremely far out there for a lot of us to understand, but again, it's within that cultural worldview. The cartels that are using Santa Muerte, uh, there, there are tons of stories, reports coming out of Mexico. Uh, we had one report where Mexican authorities had discovered shrines uh, to more thing, the house. Uh, the whole interior of the house was painted uh, into this, this enormous shrine, and it had an image of uh, the owner of the house, uh, a leader of a, a drug cartel, uh, kissing the hand of Santa Muerte. Wow. And just a very eerie landscape type of mural. Uh, we had a case that kind of bled out of Mexico, pardon the pun, but bled out of Mexico into Texas, where members of a drug cartel uh, actually murdered one of their rivals and stabbed this guy, and they took his blood and put it in a champagne glass and drank a toast to Santa Muerte. Uh, and, and this is documented. The, the stories coming out of Mexico uh, are amazing. You know, Nuevo Laredo, Mexico, is considered kind of to be the, the gateway to the drug war between the, the cartels. Mm-hmm. And when you go to Nuevo Laredo, there are two large statues of Santa Muerte there kind of 
welcoming you into the gateway into the drug war. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, it's we, like this presence that's like looming over the whole scene, it seems like. Yeah, it's it's a it's a very heavy, uh, you know, very heavy symbolism, you know, it's and it's uh it's it's definitely a symbol of the 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 air of death that is in the air uh, there in Mexico. Um there was a case where eleven members of a cartel were beheaded and their heads were placed at a shrine to Santa Muerte. You might remember a few years ago there were a couple of teenagers in Texas uh, who were arrested as being members of a, a sleeper cell, uh, a drug cartel out of Mexico. Uh, these two teenagers were taken off the streets of, of Laredo, Texas, and taken into Mexico and trained for a drug cartel. And when police did the teens, uh, one of the teens had his back decorated with an image of Santa Muerte. Uh, so she, you know, she's definitely permeating this environment as you point out in the book here now this thing has become so you know co-opted by the drug culture that there's been this serious backlash against Santa Muerte by not only the Mexican government but also the Catholic Church who I'm sure you know aren't really happy with the ensuing popularity of Santa Muerte whether it's by the the criminal element or even you know just the downtrodden in Mexico you know, it's always sort of a turf war with the churches anyway, so I'm sure they're not too happy about it either. And as you point out in the book, there's been quite a backlash by both groups, the Catholic Church and the Mexican government. So I guess talk a little bit about that backlash and, and especially what the Mexican government did to sort of dissuade the worship of uh, of Santa Muerte. Yeah, in uh, 2008, uh, the uh, Archdiocese of Mexico City makes this public announcement that devotion Santa Muerte is not compatible with traditional Catholicism. Um, and, and this started sort of a public outcry uh, by Catholics there in Mexico. Um, one of the big reasons for this outcry is one of the main uh, Santa Muerte churches uh, utilizes the name Catholic in their official title. And so the, the Catholic Church, the traditional Catholic Church there, um, you know, took great offense to that. And so there was this, this massive outcry against Santa Muerte, um, and then we started seeing somewhat of a ramping up by the Mexican government. Uh, in 2009, if you lived in Texas or Mexico, you could have turned on the TV and seen footage of bulldozers being driven by members of the Mexican government crushing temples and shrines dedicated to Santa Muerte. Uh, the Mexican kind of cried a, a official war against Santa Muerte, and they destroyed over shrines throughout Tijuana and areas of Mexico. And uh, the government's reasoning for this was they said these were places that, that drug runners would go and hang out, uh, would go and receive, you know, blessings for protections of shipments. And so by, by destroying these shrines, they felt this was sort of engaging, you know, the drug cartels. Um, we even found evidence in some of the Mexican newspapers where public shrines had been built in Mexico City, and people had come and destroyed them using uh, chemicals. You know, it's becoming a very, very heavy air there with, with those who practice the, the veneration of Santa Muerte, and then the government kind of cracking down on that. I guess this must be just like a different sort of like uh... – like law sort of thing, right? Because, I mean, even if 
you don't see like the U.S. government. You know, I'm sure they would like to bulldoze mosques and stuff to, you know, go after terrorists and stuff like that. But they they can't really do that. So I guess it must be sort of like a different legal parameters down there in Mexico, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, we're we're very very fortunate. We can worship anyone or anything as long as we're not hurting anyone or breaking any laws. You know, but but I tell you, in in Mexico, you know, it's a whole different town, and you definitely don't want to be arrested in Mexico. It's it's very different rule. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, well, I've heard some stories, but probably not even the worst ones. Well, now it seems like this Santa Muerte phenomenon, now it's spreading to America and the Internet and stuff, as you point out in the book. So talk a little bit about sort of how it's creeping its way into America now. You kind of got to wonder, too, if it's like how we talked earlier about how it appeals to sort of the impoverished and stuff, especially in light of just the the financial situation here in America, you know, if, if, if that might have something to do with Santa Muerte spreading to America as well. You know, we, we, we need, you know, people are turning to whatever they can to to get some help in these troubled times. You know, yeah, and, and that definitely, you know, begs the question of, of, you know, are we seeing people following Santa Muerte as a result of desperation in this country? Uh, wh- one of the things we're seeing in the United States that's, you know, you could only smile and say only in America is the uh, customization of Santa Muerte into a pop icon. We have here in the U.S., in fact, in the book, we, we document, you know, probably 20 or 30 pop bands named after Santa Morte. Oh, wow. Um, there are horror movies, uh, suspense novels, T-shirts. Uh, Nike has a line of tennis shoes with Santa Morte uh, on the tennis shoe. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's amazing, you know, only in America. You know, one of the facets we're seeing of, of Santa Muerte as part of the, the Western pop culture is the growth of her presence on the Internet. Um, you know, there's Santa Muerte chat rooms, there's Santa Muerte web pages. Um, we're even seeing the growth of virtual temples online where you can go into and offer prayers. You can email your prayers. You can chat with a priest. Uh, there's actually a Santa Muerte church uh, out of Los Angeles that does uh, a live broadcast and broadcast their services over the net. Uh, you know, only, again, only in America. <laughs> That's for sure, yeah, absolutely. Now, when you were doing all this research into the book and everything, were you ever sort of like warned off from investigating Santa Muerte? Because it seems, I mean, this thing is creepy. It's a little bit off-putting. And, and, and I know, obviously, that it's been adopted by some dangerous folks. So was it? Did you ever get sort of warned off, or, or what was the reaction as you tried to investigate Santa Muerte? Actually, no. Um, you know, most of the folks that I interviewed uh, were, were very open. In, in fact, it was surprising. Um, I think they kind of I kind of took them by surprise to ask about what they feel about her. One of the things I found out a, a long time ago is, you know, we have two perceptions, and that is what we think people believe versus what they actually believe many times. And yeah. the only way we can find that out is, is through interviewing uh, and, and through gathering information through that way. So, uh, you know, I, I would go to the, the supply shops and I would go to the temples and ask them, you know, wh- what do you believe? Where are you coming from? And, and for the most, we were met with very good responses. Uh, people were open. Uh, I was never warned off. You know, 
the, the ones that did talk about her as some sort of dark figure typically always referred to other people doing that. You know, they would say, yeah, I do hear that some pray to her to protect them to do something nefarious. Um, I don't do that. But, yeah. but I hear there are some that do. So, uh, so no, I, I was never, never really uh, warmed off, if you will. All right, that's cool. Yeah, I was. I found it interesting too in the book that you mentioned that Saint Jude, who is a pretty well-known saint to you know folks of the Catholic faith and everything, has also kind of been adopted by nefarious forces, which is interesting in in its own sort of way. Because I know a lot of people pray to Saint Jude for help, and I believe I think you say in the book like impossible situations. And then in turn, Absolutely. in turn, Absolutely. you know, drug runners <laughs> find themselves in impossible situations, so they turn to St. Jude. I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, it's, you know, there's, uh, in fact, there's there's a couple of cases uh, where different law enforcement agencies had intercepted um, narcotics uh, that were being sold by different uh, criminal groups, and they found that they were using statues of, of St. Jude uh, to protect their shipments. In fact, we, we had one situation where it wasn't St. Judy, it was actually Santa Muerte, was being used. Uh, they were praying to her and saying that she would make all their drugs invisible to the police. <laughs> and, uh, so, you know, uh, again, there's, that's, that's a specific worldview. And, and, you know, and the majority of Catholics that I know that, that uh, would honor St. Jude would say, no way, you know, there, she wouldn't, there's no way he would be, you know, uh, he would give favor to someone uh, asking for help like that. But obviously someone does uh, view him in that particular view. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I guess, you know, like you said, different worldviews, right? I mean. Absolutely. If you're if you're into that scene, you got to get all the help you can get, I guess. And they That's think. right. <laughs> now, in the book also, you profile a lot of sort of like the different like objects and stuff like that that are like the Santa Morte statues and stuff and how yeah. how varied they are and how each one has sort of like a different thing like attributed to them and stuff like that. So I guess talk a little bit about sort of like the sheer variety of Santa Muerte emblems or whatever statues and stuff like that that are so popular out there because it's like just listening to this the people who you know aren't from the area and everything I'm sure are going to be really surprised just by the sheer variety of, of stuff that's down there. Absolutely. Um, you know, there are, uh, I was amazed uh, when I started doing research on Santa Morte into how many different names she has. Um, she goes by Santa Morte, Santissima Morte, uh, they call her the Lady White, the Sister of Light, Powerful Lady, the Skinny Girl, uh, powerful mistress of death, and, and there's a ton of others. And so there's all these different uh, manifestations uh, of, of the image. And, you know, her, her typical image is that of the, the skeletal figure in the long flowing robe. And she's traditionally uh, holding a scythe, uh, an agricultural blade. And the, the symbolism behind that is, is said by many represent uh, a tool that can cut away negative energies or negative influences. Uh, again, all of this depends on who you talk to. Because there is no central sacred text or there's no central teaching, there's all these different varieties of, of what she means and, and how you follow her. Uh, some of the images of Santa Morte include uh, items like a globe, 
of the earth, which kind of demonstrates her power over the earth. Um, there are images with an hourglass. Uh, there are images of her with an owl. And uh, the, the symbolism behind the owl is, is pretty fascinating because uh, one of her followers told me, uh, you know, the owl is this very wise creature that can see into darkness. Yeah. So that's why that, that particular animal is affiliated with her. You'll see statues of Santa Morte depicted in many different colors, um, black, white, red, gold, green. Uh, I saw one last evening uh, that was multicolored. And each one of the colors represents a different power associated with the icon. I've seen images of, of Santa Muerta that it could fit in your pocket. Uh, and I've seen images that I've had to look up to, to see the face of. In Mexico, there's, there's a temple dedicated to the, the uh, death saint. And she actually is, the, the image in front of the temple is over 20 feet tall. Wow. And uh, it's a very massive massive image of St. Death. Uh, a lot of the images, if you, you find one, if you'll turn it over, uh, if it's if you're able to turn it over physically and look under the base of the figure, uh, many of them contain different ingredients to give them uh, a magical charge. And uh, typically under the base of the image, you'll see it looks like a clear coat of wax. And there'll be items like coins, beans, and rice, uh, and, and different materials that have sort of philosophical symbolism connected to them. Uh, and again, that differs between practitioners as to what those different ingredients mean. David St. Huggins. I, I must admit, I've never heard anybody with that name. What's an unusual name? Well, he was an unusual saint. He's not a very well-known saint. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Oh, there actually is, uh, there was oh, a yes. Saint Hubbins. That's right, yes. Yeah, what yes. was he the saint of? He was the patron saint of quality footwear. It's like a whole different world. It's amazing. Now, if someone's like a worshiper of Santa Morte, is it pretty open down there that they worship Santa Morte? Or, or is it like that she's just part of a pantheon of different, you know, deities that get worshipped? You know, it varies where you go. I've actually been into a uh, Botanica spiritual supply store up around East Tennessee that is totally dedicated to Santa Morte. And in the store, there's there's about a six to seven foot statue of Santa Morte, very out in the open. All the business cards for the business have images of her. When you go into a particular market in Memphis, uh, there's a large image of Santa Muerte uh, standing by the door. And so, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it depends on where you're at. In many of the Latin American communities, she's just very open. They're, they're just very much out there. But as far as having personal shrines, the majority of followers that I've met have been rather subtle about their uh, involvement in, in following Santa Muerte. Okay. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about some of your other research and stuff you've done studying these uh, uh, magico-religious cultures, because I'm, I'm fascinated by this. Now, you say you've interviewed practitioners, observed ceremonies, and documented practices of numerous African and Latin folk healing traditions. So, like, I guess just like talk a little bit about your experience, like, seeing this kind of stuff, because it's so you know, far out from, from my worldview and from my experience, and I'm sure of many of the listeners. Sure. It's, uh, you know, and where we are here in the South, it's, 
uh, when public safety agencies uh, encounter, and, and Santa Muerte is a great example of this, um, as we see the migration of different cultures into the United States and, and personally into uh, the southern states, you know, we're going to have this great cultural misunderstanding between um, communities that are here and different cultures that are coming into the area. Yeah. And one of the areas that we see this uh, really heavy in is in the area of, of religious culture. And so uh, we we have instances where, say, uh, a paramedic working on an ambulance uh, goes to answer a call, and when they get to a home, they see a shrine in the house. Do they touch it? Do they call the police and say there's something illegal going on? Um, one of the things that we try to do is to get public safety uh, agencies familiar with normative practices of these groups. And the way we do it is by interviewing normative practitioners uh, and, and by observing and documenting some of the different activities uh, that they, they practice in their culture. And what we're able to do is, is to use this in training and to basically say, okay, look, you can either be shocked when you walk up on a scene and bumble the scene up and bumble the communication with your patient or your client up uh, by freaking out, or you can see it in a controlled environment, and then when you walk on the scene, you'll have a grasp of, of what you're seeing, and you'll be able to communicate you know, look, I'm here to help you. Yeah. I'm not here to get in your business as far as your spirituality. And uh, so uh, through the years, I've, I've had the privilege to uh, observe and document um, some of the different ceremonies of the Santeria faith. You know, one of the ceremonies that I attended there, uh, a, a lady from Havana was performing a, uh, a divination ceremony where she asked the gods, the Orishas, uh, were they happy with how things were in her household. And they told her uh, that, you know, you've, your husband needs to sacrifice a goat, that that's something we're requiring. And her husband, who's Catholic and, and not a practitioner, was called into the room and, and told the request, you know, from the spirits. And uh, so he was very uneasy. It was a very uh, uh, awkward moment uh, when a wife, Tells the husband, you know, you're you're going to have to sacrifice a goat because the gods are calling for it. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> I've I've had the privilege to document uh, some ceremonies uh, from the local uh, neo-pagan Wiccan communities. Um, you know, again, with um, not understanding cultures, um, we'll have instances where a police officer may come up on a scene, and all he sees is people in robes and a knife. And fire, and he automatically assumes, wow, there's something, you know, pretty bad going down here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it may be something totally innocuous. You know, that's one of the things we try to do is to, to document that and, and show officers what they're going to see with see when they come on the scene. I saw like a special, uh, I think it was Taboo on National Geographic, and it was talking about, I, I don't know which country it was, but uh, it was somewhere in Africa where like somebody was accused of being a witch and they were like banished to like a witch town. Have you heard of this whole thing? Yeah, that's, you know, the, the whole, when you talk about witchcraft in an African context, uh, and many times in a Mexican context as well, we're not talking about Wicca. We're not talking yeah. about, uh, you know, benign uh, metaphysical practices. We're, 
in that connotation, in that culture, witchcraft is seen as this, this harmful sorcery. And so in Africa, we, we have situations where uh, families will uh, many times have a child who's got a birth defect or have a sickness, and the child will be socially isolated from the community because that child's considered a witch. In one of the towns in, in Kisi, which is a, a town in, uh, in outside of Kenya, uh, in Kisi, uh, actually in Kenya, the uh, one of the big problems they have is murders related to witchcraft accusations. And there have been situations where elderly people have been set on fire, oh, wow. uh, where children have been hacked to death with machetes, and it's because there's this permeating um, superstition and belief that they have some sort of witchcraft associated with them and that they'll harm the community. There's a tremendous effort going on right now in Nigeria and areas of West Africa where before uh, children being accused of witchcraft were put through very extreme exorcisms. And there are organizations uh, like Stepping Stones out of Nigeria that are going in and providing uh, ways to get these children off the streets. Um, in the, the capital city of Kinshasa, uh, in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, there are hundreds of thousands of children in the streets who have been abandoned because their parents believe they're witches. Oh, my God. Uh, it's a holocaust within itself. And uh, some of the things that are going on there are just are just unbelievable. It's easy as a you know a Westerner to sort of dismiss the the magical aspects of of these religious cultures, but as someone who's been down there and seen some of these ceremonies and talked to people who've you know who live in the lifestyle, I mean, have you heard or seen anything like I guess you could say magical? Do you know what I mean? Like like supernatural in the way. You know, as a result of some of this uh, magical religious cultures, I myself personally have not seen anything that I would consider uh, magic at work. But I can say I've, I've interviewed enough folks and looked into their eyes when they've told you stories of things they've experienced to know there there is something that that is going on, yeah. and to know that that it is a very real uh, worldview that that many many people hold. Okay. Do you have any good stories like that people might have told you, like of something weird happening? Gosh, you know, when we talk about, especially when we talk about Africa, Africa is a whole other ball field. When when you step into the atmosphere of Africa, um, spirituality is such a, a uh, um, you know important aspect of African culture that you know one of the first times I, I was in Africa, my translator said. Uh, we were walking along, and, and, and there's a tree stump, and on this tree stump is this, this really beautiful big lizard had crawled up on the stump. And I go to, to take a picture of it, and my translator, who's, who's African, grabs my arm and pulls me back. And he goes, no, he says, you do not want to get near that. And he says, it's evil. And, I, you know, I said, you know, that's, that's a lizard. And he said, no. And he said, you have to understand that is evil. And uh, the more I spent time with, with some of the people of his particular people group, um, the more we understood uh, the appearance of different animals uh, are, are sort of omens in their particular culture. So you would be going somewhere and a particular type of bird would fly over a hut. And he would immediately jump back and, and say, you know, that is a sign of sorcery. That is a sign of witchcraft. 
And uh, so, you know, just some very, very interesting things. Out of Nairobi, uh, there was a problem for a while with a, uh, a street gang called the Mungiki. Uh, and the Mungiki uh, are from the Kikuyu people of, of Kenya. And the, the Mungiki are trying to revive the uh, Mau Mau traditions of Africa. And they believe in the, the uh, Kikuyu following the Kikuyu gods, and they believe that, that using snuff is a sacrament. And uh, they're typically physically characterized by uh, dreadlocks. And in Nairobi, uh, they're, they're very well known for beheadings with machetes. Uh, and they'll be in the marketplaces many times, and if they see a woman that they consider inappropriately dressed, they'll rip her clothes off, and in some cases have attacked her with machetes. Oh my God! So it's a, a very, uh, uh, very um, different culture, and a very—it's uh, uh, that particular group. The, the Kenyan government outlawed that particular group a couple of years ago, and uh, there was sort of—it uh, was—it was very similar to the, the drug war in Mexico. You had the police cracking down cartel, you know, type groups and uh, security threat groups, and uh, so yeah, it's a it's a very uh, hostile environment at times. Seems that way, yeah. Were you now? You're, I just saw the picture of you. You look like a pretty big guy, but so I guess you didn't run into any sort of like <laughs> trouble like that or anything, right? <laughs> well, I'm talking to you, so I guess not, right? <laughs> and have you looked at the at the Native American cultures and and you know they're they're sort of. Uh, magical religious aspects to them. Have you looked at that at all? Um, I have a, I have family that uh, you have a, a definite traceable lineage to some of the Native American, you know, ethnic groups. And um, I, I think that is a, a fascinating area. One of the fascinating cases with them uh, involving the, the use of Native American culture is, you know, of course, over the last couple of years, some of the groups that are trying to um, – use hallucinogenic drugs and, and claim that they're affiliated with Native American traditions. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we see this happen many times. Uh, some of the groups uh, may have some loose affiliation, uh, but many times we're seeing groups basically prostitute the, the culture of, of Native Americans and use it to push their own things, and they may not even have Native American blood in them, you know? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Well... That's no surprise, I guess. Now I see here in your in your bio that you were on the History Channel's UFO Hunters, which I'm wondering how that ended up happening. So what what what's the connection there? Yeah, that was that was a uh, uh, that was different. Um, I got called by the show because they were working on some episodes involving cattle mutilations, mm -hmm. and of course, anytime you have the subject of cattle mutilations come up, uh, the whole urban legends about satanic groups going out and, and, you know, doing these mass animal sacrifices and secret animal sacrifices comes up. And there was a, a small town in Missouri that was experiencing uh, cattle mutilations. And uh, they called me and said, we want someone to, someone who has seen an animal sacrifice uh, done in a religious context uh, to kind of come and see what you think of this. And so I went there, and, you know, you're, you're looking at a cow in the middle of a pasture that's had its eyes removed and its uh, anus removed and its sexual organs removed uh, and all the soft parts of the animals that predators like. 
And I told him, I said, you know, let me just go ahead and put it on the table. There are no traditional magical religious groups that are going to sneak over to someone's house, kill an animal like that. And in, in that context, it's not a sacrifice. You're going over and killing someone else's animal. What kind of sacrifice is that? You're stealing a sacrifice. In fact, if you, you know, to me, that would offend a God. Yeah. Uh, going over to someone else's property and killing an animal like that. So, uh, they're, they're, you know, and, and when we talk about animal sacrifice within magical religious cultures, you know, a lot of times we get this image that someone at, say, a Santeria Center ceremony, you know, just grabs an animal and kills it or kills a dog or a cat or whatever. There are specific criteria that, that are passed down in these traditions. You know, you, you only kill certain animals, typically animals we would eat, like chicken, you know? Yeah. And, and they're killed in such a way that uh, they're, they're kind of put into shock as they're killed. And there's, there's no torture there. It's, it's just done as an offering. And there's a criteria. And, and there's a ritual. And they're left. They're typically cooked after they're sacrificed uh, and, unless they were used to remove a sickness. And so, you know, when, when we think animal sacrifice, we get these images of, you know, savage voodoo ceremonies of people killing animals and butchering cats and things like that. When the reality, the, the actual practice of animal sacrifice in these religious cultures uh, is done in a very organized, structured manner. And it's, it's done in a way that typically is not harmful uh, as far as creating pain in the animals. Yeah, yeah. Now, I'm going to sound like a complete rube here, uh, or I'm going to sound like someone who's uneducated, so forgive me. But what about, it sounds like you've studied voodoo pretty extensively. What about the whole zombie thing with voodoo that's sort of like part of the, you know, the pop culture aspect of it? What do you know about that whole thing? Well, from my limited understanding on voodoo, uh, the aspect of the zombie, there are, uh, these these concepts known as astral zombies, where people can be uh, somewhat controlled and spirits can be controlled. Um, you know, I think there was some validity to what uh, anthropologist Wade Davis found uh, that was, you know, documented in The Serpent and the Rainbow as far as his writing, maybe not the movie, uh, but as far as the use of, you know, the puffer fish and, and some of the uh, different powders that were created there to to simulate death, to slow the heart rate down. Uh, but as far as there being this, you know, creation of zombies, one one of our uh, contacts who is a, a recognized priestess, uh, a mambo in Haitian voodoo, you know, says, I get asked about zombies, but that's not something we do. You know, it's not something that's there. It's, it's very much a Hollywood thing, much like voodoo dolls. Yeah, that's what I figured. Oh, so voodoo dolls aren't really that much of a part of the whole thing either? Not, a, not as part of traditional voodoo. Um, you know, voodoo, um, whether it be uh, West African voodoo or Asian voodoo, you know, there are images used uh, typically in healing rites, um, but the whole stick a pin in the doll, we think that a lot of that was misconstrued from some of the early Congo civilizations that used images that had nails driven in the images to incite a spirit or to, to trap a spirit, but not to, you know, think of your boss and, 
and stick a needle <laughs> in the doll to, to give him a headache, you know? Yeah. Now, one other element in the book that I completely glossed over getting a chance to ask you about is this Mexican folk magic, which you really detail pretty extensively in the book, and I know you've written about it for Fate Magazine. So talk a little bit about, you know, Mexican folk magic and what that's all about. Actually, when we look at Mexican folk magic, it's, it's less of a religion and more of a healing tradition. Uh, the practice of Quirin is a healing tradition that utilizes recognizing Catholic saints, some of the folk saints, and, and focuses on uh, the body being spiritually balanced. Curanderismo, the name actually comes from the, the Spanish word curar, to heal. And so the whole focus is that healing. That particular tradition is where we see many times the use of some of the folk saints, um, like, um, you know, Dr. Hernandez or, or Our Lady of Guadalupe or right. even Santa Muerte. And typically the healer, known as a curandero, uh, if it's a female, it's a curandera, would utilize uh, herbs and powders and oils and candles to bring about balance to someone uh, spiritually in return or in effect. Uh, that brings about balance to that particular person physically. Okay. And it's interesting, too, when you really think about it, because it's like this stuff's pretty still obviously – obviously it's huge in, in Africa and stuff, uh, you know, the the magico-religious cultures. And, and as you say, this, this folk aspect of everything down in Mexico is pretty big. It's just surprising because I guess you don't really see it in the mainstream here in America too much, but I have a feeling that it probably is – a part of the cultures that come to America and, and, you know, integrate themselves into into our country, right? Oh, absolutely. And it's, you know, it is, when you look for it, it is here in the United States. You know, we have, uh, we have Wiccan practitioners. We have Santeria practitioners. We have voodoo practitioners. Uh, we have all sorts of different magical religious cultures throughout the United States. And, you know, some of the ethnic traditions that are specifically ethnic, say Haitian voodoo, um, you do find many times um, sort of isolated to particular communities where maybe there is a family of Haitians that, that brought their religion with them when they moved to this country. Um, but what we're seeing here, too, in 2010 is where we might used to only see particular ethnic groups practicing, say, Santeria, um, now in 2010, you've got upper-class Caucasians practicing some of these ethnic traditions. Yeah. So I think the I think the door has opened, uh, and and these cultures are opening themselves up to different ethnic groups, uh, and and you know again it it differs geographically how things are practiced in the South uh, differs a little bit than how things may be practiced, say in New Jersey. Yeah, um, and and a lot of it has to do with what what is the the uh, atmosphere in the community. You know, here here in the South, opening a botanica and putting a, a statue of you know a, a African god in the front window might draw a lot of attention, but if you do it in Brooklyn, uh, you know, it's it's no big deal. It's it's part of the landscape. It's part of the neighborhood, and so. Uh, again, I think it just depends on um, – I'm fascinated by how practitioners of these particular cultures um, 
how they function, how they continually survive in environments where their particular faith is seen as taboo. Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. It's interesting, and you got to give them credit, I guess, you know, because they still hold on to those values despite you know, I mean, America and everything. You know, and, and, and that, that theme of survival is a theme that has brought and kept religions like voodoo in Santeria. Um, it's, it's through the survival of, of how they changed and how they um, uh, coped with, with the cultural stresses around them that, they, that they're here today. Uh, so I think historically they're fascinating to, to examine how, they, how they've made it here and how they've survived. What do you have on the agenda next? I mean, uh, obviously this book's pretty new, so you're you're sort of spreading the word about that. Uh, you know, what kind of stuff are you looking at for future investigations? Actually, uh, we're still trying to do a lot of work uh, in East Africa. Uh, we're focused on uh, putting out a, an educational program there in some of the communities to spread education about uh, preventing uh, witch hunts and witchcraft-related violence. And I know that's something that uh, here, um, you know, we we tend to think is just a whole other world, but but it's it's a reality uh, going on in many people's lives there. And so we're continuing to do work there uh, with with providing medical care and education there in some of the communities of uh, East Africa. Yeah, that sounds just just horrifying uh, of a situation. I mean, how do you even? The show I saw, the lady was just like accused of witchcraft by someone who didn't like her, and then she was pretty much banished. The trial was was very, you know, uh, sort of magical religious to use, you know, to probably misuse the phrase, but but I think I think you know what I mean. It was like, you know, the the priest of the of the tribe pretty much did something in front of her hut or something, and then next thing you know, it was like, all right, she's a witch for sure. Yeah, it's you know, and and what we're seeing is because all of that begins as a fault. And, and, and as a thought, it starts to, to take shape and move into action that by providing education to combat that, then that thought can start solidifying and hopefully turn into a behavior to make an ideal safe environment. You know, there's still such an, a cloud of misunderstanding in areas there of Africa with uh, even with diseases like AIDS. Uh, it's still believed in many areas that uh, a male with AIDS, uh, if he has sex with a virgin, that it will take AIDS away from him. Oh, and God. So you've got young girls walking around who are dying of AIDS because this false belief is still permeating different communities. And it's only by the efforts of, of the Red Cross and groups that are going over and providing education to kind of turn the tide on this. And that's what we hope to do with some of this education uh, against uh, witch hunts and, and some of the extreme exorcisms going on with children. My goodness. It's unbelievable. Now, has this backlash against Santa Muerte uh, in Mexico, I think you said it was like around 2008 that they destroyed all these temples and everything. Has it sort of like lessened since then, or is it, it more intense? Or, you know, what's the status, I guess you could say, of, of Santa Muerte in Mexico? Santa Muerte in Mexico seems to, in a lot of ways, kind of taken the back burner as the Mexican government and the United States government become more uh, involved as, as far as the antagonism there uh, that's going on um, with, with you know, the possibility of troop buildup on the border and issues relating to immigration. 
Um, but I think it's, it's still there. You know, I've got a contact in Mexico City. And she said, you know, she said, you know, I know that the government put the word out that they were the ones that wanted these temples crushed. And she said, but I have it, um, I have it by good word of someone that's, that's very trustworthy, uh, in a high, high place that a lot of those shrines were destroyed because they were taking congregates away from Catholic churches in those areas. Yeah, that's and what so, I was thinking, yeah. You know, we, we, we may see some other motivations there in that. And I think it's fascinating to see, too, um, this, this, quote, magical buildup between the magical pol- between the police and the drug cartels. I, I, I kind of compared it to we, we had in the Carolinas years ago a sheriff, uh, Ed McTeer, who uh, realized that the majority of his jurisdiction uh, had a population that believed in, in southern folk magic and hoodoo. And so McTeer took it upon himself to learn the ways of hoodoo, and he became known as a very well-known, powerful root doctor. And this sort of cut down on some of the things that were going on as far as criminal activity associated with magical practices. And so I wonder if, in a way, the uh, Mexican police are seeing their attempts to grasp these traditions of spirituality as a way of of kind of shutting down the cartels that are trying to use, you know, supernatural powers to, to do what they do. Yeah. Now, I've never heard of this hoodoo. What is what is this southern folk magic now? I've never heard of this. Uh, tell me a little more. Hoodoo is uh, – it typically is just a, a, a word used. It's, it's kind of a blanket term to describe a number of different traditions that originally came uh, mostly from Africa and were brought with the slaves. And so – you see sort of a carrying on of these traditions. Uh, and, and instead of, say, when we see voodoo and we see the combination of African spirituality combined with French Catholicism, um, hoodoo, you'll see African spirituality combined with elements of Native American practices, uh, Protestant uh, practices. Um, you might see what was an old African ritual for healing uh, take on a new face when someone performs it as they're reading one of the Psalms out of the Bible. Interesting, yeah. And uh, it, that that culture still is, is still resonant in, in some areas of the South. Uh, you can go to Memphis. There's a, a very large shop there where you can buy candles and oils and uh, books on basically how to, you know, how to bring about financial success and how to uh, fix a scorned love and, and things like that. So uh, it's just sort of um, it's another one of the survivals of African religious tradition. Very interesting. Yeah. See, this is fascinating to me. I'd never heard of this, uh, but it makes sense. You know, as as you know, the old melting pot expression of America. You know, absolutely. It makes a lot of sense. Is there more, I guess you could say, to explore with the Santa Muerte, or do you think you pretty much nailed it in the book? I got to give props to the pictures in there. They're amazing. How did you, are these courtesy of, of, of people down there or did you, are these from your own travels? It, it's a combination of both. Um, a lot of the photos were, you know, taken during um, research for the book that uh, just different uh, temples and different uh, shops that I had, had uh, been given access to. The ceremonies in uh, Tepito uh, were actually taken by a, uh, a teacher who's there. And um, that's the the photo you see on the cover, and some of the 
ones on the inside. And uh, there was actually a, a photographer um, who had done some work for the L.A. Times, and uh, he had uh, some just incredible photographs of a, a temple in Los Angeles. And uh, so there's some photographs in there from him as well. So I, I'm, I'm a very visual person, and a lot of these concepts are really – they're really hard to grasp unless you can see some visuals. So I thought it was very important to, to bring that to the book. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And, I mean, like I said, i got to give you props for it. Definitely folks need to pick up the book just, just for the pictures alone. I mean, they're really uh, chilling images, some of these depictions of Santa Muerte, which makes it all the more interesting because she's so revered. And, I mean, you have a quote in there from a, from a young lady who's like a, a worshiper of Santa Muerte, and, and she just – expresses such love for the deity it's such a strange juxtaposition because it's like the figure is so frightening but uh she invokes such love in 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 her worshipers yeah you know that's that was the that was one of the things that was really hard to wrap my mind around at first and that is that you look at something that that on the surface would be just grotesque you know here's a here's a skeletal figure pointing at you with these uh, very hollow eyes and this this grinning skull face, and yet you would hear people call her their beautiful mother. And uh, so you know, again, it, it just sort of is. It's it's getting into the worldview of the practitioner that that you know it takes that in for order for us to to understand what they're what they're seeing and what they're feeling. And uh, I, I think that's uh, um, I think that was very important. To, to kind of grasp where they were coming from. And while Santa Morte is not for me personally, uh, it is uh, definitely for, for thousands of, of Mexicans and Americans. Yeah, I found that kind of funny in the book, too, because uh, you say that, you know, you don't worship Santa Morte, but it's not like at, at some point they were, like, trying to, <laughs> like, push you into into making uh, sacrifices or, you know, um, leaving tributes and stuff to, to the Santa Muerte statue in, in one of the shops you were in. So it was like, oh, no, dude, don't – you're going to <laughs> you're gonna get in trouble or something, man. Be careful. Yeah, yeah I want to hear stories about, oh, why don't you give her an offering? And then the next thing you would hear is stories like, um, um, you know, if, if you give her something, she'll always expect more. And uh, so <laughs> I, I said, well, uh, you know, thank goodness I'm, I'm just a – a non-biased, non-attached observer, and I prefer it that way. Yeah, yeah. Well, I look at it a little bit kind of like because what you were saying earlier about people who, you know, who didn't worship in the right way or whatever. I mean, in a way, it's kind of like, and this is probably, like, again, you know, sort of an ignorant comparison, and I apologize for that, but it's sort of, in my mind, a little bit like the Ouija board thing. Like, you, you don't want to mess with this thing, probably, unless you really kind of know what you're doing or you have somebody that knows what they're doing because – I think, like, it all comes from the whole belief structure, and if, if you're messing around with it, you know, that might not be a good idea. You know, obviously... Yeah, that, that you, you seems to be the general back. consensus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so folks out there, don't go get a Santa Muerte statue and start your rituals and stuff. Don't, don't do that, because, you know, we don't know what the hell might happen to you. That's right. <laughs> and on that note, where can folks pick up Santa Muerte, Mexico's Mysterious Saint of Death? Well, as always, you can go to our website at www.muertebook.info, or you can go to Amazon or uh, Books a Million, and uh, the book is available there. Nice, nice. What's the response been like to the book so far? 
It's been really good. Um, it's been, uh, you know, a very, I have a very varied audience of, of readers so far. Uh, you have people who are practitioners, and then you have people who are just extremely curious. And, you know, this is the, the first um, non-law enforcement uh, book that I've written uh, that's not for a law enforcement audience or a public safety audience. And uh, I, I just wanted to kind of put it out there for the general public because, I, you know, I, I went searching for her history and, and found this amazing story of things I never knew were going on. And that's the story that people can check out when they pick up the book, Santa Muerte, Mexico's Mysterious Saint of Death. Well, Tony, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show and, and sharing so much information here about Santa Muerte. I definitely want folks out there to go pick up the book. They will really enjoy it, I think, and they'll be really blown away just by, you know, the sheer amount of information in there and just how compelling this whole thing is. It really is quite compelling, and, and I'm a little concerned now because you said when you first discovered this, then you started seeing Santa Muerte all over the place. I'm afraid that's going to happen to me, but I I don't know. Maybe that's a good thing. I'm not sure. <laughs> anyway, it's been it's been great talking to you. I wish you the best of luck. Um, any speaking engagements you want to plug or upcoming appearances or future projects, anything like that, uh, TV appearances, stuff like that that you might have uh, on the burner that you should mention? Actually, if you just want to go to our website, we've started to put some of our uh, upcoming signings and readings there, and uh, we'd be glad to uh, send out any information uh, if, if folks will drop us a line at the email address, or excuse me, the web address. Awesome. Sounds great. Well, Tony, it's been great talking to you. I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. I wish you the best of luck. I hope folks go and pick up the book and, uh, you know, keep me posted on your travels and your research. And, you know, hopefully we can talk again about some of this magical religious cultures and, uh, you know, some of the interesting, um, you know, lifestyles and cultures and belief systems that are going on all around the world. Absolutely. I look forward to it. That does it for this week's edition of BOA Audio Season 5. A big, big, super huge thanks, of course, to Tony Kale for coming on the show. You can find out more from him at the website, www.muertebook.info. Let me spell that out for you, muerte, M-U-E-R-T-E, book.info. Check it out for more info on his book, Santa Muerte, Mexico's Mysterious Saint of Death. Moving right along now, it's time for BOA Audio Listener Feedback, and we've just got one email this week, kind of long one, wanted to have it as a standalone email for this week's segment, and it comes from Dunaka Makigan in Dublin, Ireland, and here's what he has to say. I'm Irish, and while working here from home in Dublin, there's little I enjoy more than listening to your show. I have from time to time written articles on the occult and the esoteric. I also edit and proof work concerning the esoteric for a publishing house on a voluntary basis. So when I say I think your show's great, you can take that as a big compliment. However, I do fear that my fellow listeners in the U.S. may be placed under something of a misapprehension following the recent interview with William H. Kennedy, specifically regarding the supposed superstitious nature of we Irish. I can assure both you and he that as an Irishman born, bred, and living here, as one raised in a number of Irish counties, fluent in our native language and aware of the many traditions, folk customs, and practices of my own country, he is quite wrong. I can only refute in the strongest terms possible 
the perhaps unintentional impression given by Mr. Kennedy that we Irish are uniquely superstitious or inclined to take more seriously than other nations the threat of hexes, curses, and spells. In fact, I suspect in this regard Mr. Kennedy has fallen prey to a long-standing stereotype in English-language cultures, the one whereby the Irish, being largely Catholic, were thus excessively superstitious, irrational, and in need of enlightened governance by their quote-unquote more civilized and rational English neighbors, none of which, of course, need take away from the merits of Mr. Kennedy's research regarding satanic activities within the Catholic Church. But surely, in this domain above all else, it is important to avoid falling prey to erroneous caricature. Anyway, that's my piece. Keep up the good work, Master Banal, and know that at least one of the sons of Erin are listening. La Messe, Donaka Makigam, in Dublin, Ireland. Thank you so much for writing in, Donaka. First of all, you know I love the international listeners. I am humbled to hear that somebody all the way over there in Dublin, Ireland is following BOA Audio. It never ceases to amaze me, the vast reach of this program and Danaka has allowed us to put another pushpin into the world map here, this time in Dublin, Ireland. So thank you, Danaka. I really appreciate the email. I don't have too much to say about what you have to say here. I really just wanted your statement to stand alone. Felt that it really worked with this week's edition of the program, because Tony Kale is really all about understanding various world cultures and not getting wrapped up in, as you say, misapprehensions and stereotypes. I'm sure that William H. Kennedy meant no disrespect to the great people of Ireland, and as you say, I think he probably fell prey to this stereotype. I have, of course, forwarded the email to him so he knows your take on the subject. And I wanted your point of view to be shared with the BOA Audio listeners so we can get a more well-rounded view of the world and of these folk customs, practices, and traditions in various nations. Because the last thing we want to do here on the program is to put forward any long-standing stereotypes or add fuel to the fire of misplaced attributes to various cultures and communities. So once again, thank you for writing in, Danaka. You humble me with your kind words, and I really appreciate that you stepped up to the plate to clear up the misconceptions that may have been put out there by William H. Kennedy in that interview, and to enlighten all of the BOA Audio listeners as to where these stereotypes may have come from. You've done us a great service, and I thank you once again for writing in. As I said, that's the only email this week. Wanted to do just one standalone email so that it had a little more impact on the folks listening here at the end of the program. We'll try and get into some more emails next week, maybe do two or three if they're pithy. So now's the time to write in. We still have tons of emails, of course, in the BOA Audio Listener Feedback Mailbag, but we love adding more into the mix. So shoot me your thoughts on the program on the guests, on where you'd like to see things go here as we head into the close of Season 5, and I'm already sort of percolating on a number of guests for Season 6. How do you get in touch with me? That's simple. The three main methods are as follows. You go to benallofamerica.com, and you click the Contact button. That's pretty simple. That'll give you all the information you need to get in touch with me. 
or just write to boaaudio at hotmail.com. I check that email all the time. And the final main method is to join up at the official BOA forum, theusofe.com, T-H-E-U-S-O-F-E.com. Lots of great folks on there. The community is growing day after day. People on there talking about pop culture and esoterica. We like to call it BOA's Paranormal Playground. All kinds of fun stuff going on at the U.S. of E. And as I've been saying here at the end of the show for the last few weeks, of course, I'm on all those great social networking sites, Twitter, Facebook, and MySpace. Friend me, follow me, poke me. It's all good. So those are all the correspondences. Send me your thoughts on the program. I'd love to hear them, and I'd love to feature them here on BOA Audio Listener Feedback. Up next, it is the thanks portion of the show. Allow me to roll through the list of the esteemed and infamous BOA staff. Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, Richard Thomas, Marla Pena, our contributing cartoonist, Annie Carolin, and our webmaster, Jeremy Boston. Since the last time you heard from me, we've got two new columns at BOA. The first one comes from Rochelle Hawks, her piece, Medusa's Ladder, this time around titled Weeding the Bookmarks, Recommended Sites, Essays, and Videos, a Veritable Cornucopia of cool esoteric sites for people to check out. Lots of awesome avenues to explore, thanks to Rochelle Hawks' Medusa's Ladder. And then yesterday we posted Orange Orb Confirmations from Regan Lee in her column Trickster's Realm, talking about her childhood experience seeing an orange orb in Oregon in the 1980s and how that experience has been borne out over the years with further orange orb sightings that she's uncovered in various places. So check that out for sure at BOA. I'm also sitting on an all-new Grey Matters from Leslie. We're hoping for a new piece from Marla Pena in response to this week's edition of the program regarding Santa Muerte, so keep an eye out for that at BOA as well. The BOA staff always stepping up to the plate with some powerful pieces for you to read. At the website, thought-provoking missives from the talented BOA staff. We say it week in and week out, but it is true, my friends. If you're only listening to BOA audio and you're not reading the columns at Benall of America, then you're only getting half the story. BOA, make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. Allow me now to tip my hat and offer a huge thanks to the folks who have been stepping up to the plate over the last couple of weeks with donations to Banal of America and BOA Audio. We put out a serious call for donations a few weeks ago, and a lot of people have really helped us out. Of course, the bills keep coming, so i got to keep asking for donations. Believe me, I would love it if I could sit here at the end of the program and say, hey, folks, we don't need any more donations. It's awesome. We're set for life. But unfortunately, that's not the case. How can you help us out? How can you make a donation to Banal of America that's simple? You just go to BOA and you click the PayPal button. You should be able to find it pretty easily. It says, Donate PayPal Help Support BOA. That'll take you to PayPal. They'll walk you through the process. For the folks who do not like PayPal, they don't trust the Internet. They don't want to put their credit card information out there. I don't blame them. The Internet's a dangerous and scary place. How do you help us out if you don't want to donate via PayPal? The good news is we got you covered because we have the BOA P.O. Box. 
That way you can send a snail mail donation. Here is the address for the BOA P.O. Box. Tim Benall, B-I-N-N-A-L-L, P.O. Box 232, Pinehurst, Mass, 01866. Pinehurst being spelled P-I-N-E-H-U-R-S-T. And the zip code, once again, 01866, P.O. Box 232. Put it all together, and here's how it comes out for you. Tim Benall, P.O. Box 232, Pinehurst, Mass, 01866. As we say all the time here at the show, no donation is too small, and all donations go towards keeping BOA and BOA audio up and running, commercial-free, and freely available for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. Next week on the program, folks, we turn BOA audio up to 11, because we are entering into the final four of Season 5. Four superstar A-list guests lined up for you here as we close out this season of BOA Audio. I'm going to do something a little bit different here. Even though I already have the interview taped, I'm going to sit on the guest's name for now. I'm very close to locking in the remaining members of the final four of season five. And I don't know, I may have to push next week's episode further into the week until everything is lined up perfectly, but we are on the precipice of having it all straightened out. I will tease next week's guest simply by saying, first of all, I think it may infuriate some of our listeners. I hope that's not the case. I know it will delight a number of other listeners and really be enjoyed by a lot of folks who may not be BOA Audio listeners who may tune into the program for the first time ever. Here is the tease for the episode, and I'll unleash the name very soon. We're talking about a pop culture conspiracy in a major way from somebody who was right in the thick of this conspiracy, and he's blowing the whistle on it, and he's telling a lot of inside information, and he's pulling the curtain back on this massive conspiracy. And this guy here, who is our guest next week, was... Headline news throughout the world three years ago when he got mixed up in all this. And that's really the most vague version of next week's guest that I can give you right now. But that's just part one of the final four of season five. Huge names lined up here for August as we close the book on season five. Folks, as I said, we're turning it up to 11. We are going into overdrive, much like last year, and ending the season on the strongest note possible. It is going to be an amazing journey over the next few weeks here on this program. And on that note, we close the book on another edition of BOA Audio. Big, big thanks once again to Tony Kale for coming on the show. Check out his website, muertebook.info. Big thanks to Danaka for writing in all the way from Dublin, Ireland to share his thoughts on the William H. Kennedy interview. And, of course, I can't thank the BOA Audio listeners enough. You guys are the best. Thank you for your support. You are the fuel that drives the BOA machine. Believe me, I know that without you, this program would be nothing. So thank you for making this program a part of your esoteric audio playlist. Until next time, this is Tim Benall. Thanking you for listening and signing off.